Section 17 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 Packed Court. Another result of the shooting of Osmond Steele was the recall of Dr. Smith A. Boughton for a second trial. The affair in Delaware County caused Governor Wright to declare that I, being the principal leader, must be made an example of, he wrote in his memoirs. The reopening of the case came as a surprise to him, for empty pocket-books had taught many Columbia County up-renters to say down-rent, and he did not expect the businessmen to risk another boycott. Nevertheless, on September 1, 1845, he found himself back in Hudson, and filled with forebodings. He knew a hard fight lay ahead. Money had been unsparingly used by the feudal lords, and he had reason to believe that some of it might reach the bench or the jury, in spite of the vigilance of Ambrose L. Jordan, who was to defend him again. John Van Buren, again sent to Hudson by Silas Wright to supersede local authorities, was already there, insisting on immediate trial. Aside from his partisanship and the political necessity of vindicating the policy which he himself had helped to formulate, the younger Van Buren had a personal stake in the outcome of the Boughton trial. Tall and handsome, a likable hail-fellow well met, Prince John had a strong following among the younger Democrats, but he was still anxious to justify his appointment as Attorney General. Boughton's second trial afforded an ideal opportunity for Prince John to establish himself, especially since Judge John Worth Edmonds had come up from New York City to try the case. Edmonds was an unshakable Democrat, and a close, personal, and political friend of both Silas Wright and Martin Van Buren. He had started his law practice in the Van Buren office, and in the spring of 1845 had been appointed by Wright to the circuit bench in New York. His pretext for leaving his own jurisdiction now was a sentimental wish to return to his old home for a circuit, but political and personal incentives were obviously stronger. Making no pretense of impartiality, Judge Edmonds boasted that he would convict Big Thunder in short order, though it had taken Judge Parker three weeks to try him in the spring without getting a conviction. The landlords had finally succeeded in finding a judge devoted to their interests, and Boughton realized it. When the trial opened on September 3rd, friends of Prince John and Judge Edmonds packed the courtroom. Few of the farmers who thronged the city could find seats, and many milled in the courthouse square, waiting eagerly for news. Their fear that the judge was packed was soon confirmed. Edmonds ruled that no person was competent to serve as a juror who had lived in any infected district, or who believed the tenures unwholesome. The tenants observed bitterly that the court had nothing to say about the ferocious hate of those who lived in uprent towns. Alvin Bove, stopping on his way back to New York from his tour of the anti-rent counties, found the judge is all on one side, and there is a crushing official force bearing down to effect conviction. At the beginning of the trial, Judge Edmonds demonstrated how effective a landlord agent he could be. He was paying his political debts by closing his eyes to the evils of the semi-feudal tenures, 
evils with which he was thoroughly familiar and which he was capable of describing in graphic terms after the trial was over he knew almost everybody in the county and used this knowledge freely to help prince john hand-pick the jury with question after question john hammered away trying to break down one talesman's claim to impartiality and in the end he appeared convinced but the judge recessed the court and called the young prosecutor into his chambers i have known that man for a long time he said he never saw a dog fight without taking sides he lives on the border of the manor and within half a mile of the tavern where the anti-renters gather his story of indifference cannot be true the man's wife children and neighbors were summoned for questioning and the next day prince john elicited testimony that the veneer man was one of the most radical anti-renters that once when a deputy sheriff had been shot at he had declared that the fellow should have been killed that he had worked for anti-rentism at the polls and had said no man not an anti-renter ought to be allowed to vote and that although he was penurious he had contributed toward the cost of defending dr boughton drawing of the jury was slow and tedious and the only excitement was when sharp-tongued aquafortis tangled with judge van buren judge edmonds called jordan's deportment offensive and disrespectful and said the lawyer tried his irascible temper quite severely but the spectators liked the relief from the tedium coming late one morning jordan found that the court had convened without him over the protest of his assistant james storms with eyes flashing he strode down the courtroom brusquely interrupted storms in the midst of examining a juror and took over the questioning himself the atmosphere was electric a few moments later when he challenged the admissibility of some of van buren's evidence there was an angry exchange between the two men and jordan finally turned on van buren mr attorney general he snapped i will not submit to this offensive language any longer i give you fair notice you have been trying to provoke me by your insolence speaking directly to the jurors already impaneled he continued angrily the attorney general does not care for the condition of these men he has not contended for right or justice but to make an exhibition of himself to pander to the miserable ambition which was the curse of his father though the father had brains to temper his wild ambition in some degree the son has none to temper his and it breaks out everywhere in puerility and slush the entire courtroom gasped john van buren addressed the court his voice cold the counsel opposed has informed your honor of the cause of my presence here i shall not stoop to deny his coarse assertions but allow me to add it is quite out of place for a man who stands here with the contributions of murder and arson in his pockets to criticize me for any cause you lie roared jordan john van buren swung and caught jordan full on the face agile despite his gray hair and fifty-six years jordan lunged back striking prince john on the head his younger opponent tried to ward off the blows and dr boughton ducked as fists thudded over his body the courtroom was in a tumult officers separated the two men while judge edmonds pounded for order and then directed that they be confined for twenty-four hours for contempt 
Van Buren immediately apologized and asked the court to fine him instead, but Jordan did not. As this offense has happened here in a court of justice, I regret it, Jordan said. I have, however, no whining apology to make, nor any favors to ask except this, that the court will do me the favor to confine us both in the same room. Jordan was sent to the sheriff's parlors, and Prince John to the sheriff's office. There the young attorney-general, shame vying with anxiety as to the possible effect on his political future, wrote a letter of resignation to Governor Wright. When Judge Edmonds learned of it, he rushed a message urging the governor to ignore that resignation, as he did not see how a man of honor could have done otherwise than resent so gross an insult. Evidence of advancing civilization in America, the British press commented on this altercation. The next morning the crowded courtroom was expectant, but Jordan and Van Buren took their seats without a word. Toward noon John Van Buren strolled to the bench and spoke quietly to Judge Edmonds. I hope the court slept well last night. Yes, the judge answered. The court was not aware of anything to disturb its slumbers. I didn't know that its conscience under the circumstances would permit it. Van Buren then added in a confidential tone, I trust our arrangement to spend Sunday with the old man holds good. Yes, so far as I am concerned, the judge replied. Well, the old man will be right glad to see you now. Judge Edmonds subsequently decided against the weekend junket to Lindenwald. He was afraid that it might be misconstrued. After two vexatious weeks, the jury box was finally filled, and the examination of witnesses brought a new set of spectators. A New York Herald correspondent reported, Judge Edmonds, who is renowned for his courtesy to the fair sex, has generally invited the ladies of this place to attend the trial of the doctor who so terrified them last winter, and we have, in addition to our known bells, the bright-eyed, rosy-cheeked, and languishing Miss W. of Jersey City, the charming and captivating Miss J. of New York, the beautiful and fair-complexioned Miss Mick of Greenport, a few days later, an equally rapturous reporter for the same paper wrote, Our courthouse for the past week has assumed a rather recherché appearance, and the somber walls and cold formality of a criminal court turned into a heaven of sunshine by the smiles and beauty of our pretty women. Oh, for a pen dipped in the golden rays of the setting sun to describe them! It would be wrong to individualize. But to correct the mistake of one of your correspondents, I will state that the bright-eyed, rosy-cheeked, and languishing Miss W. is not from Jersey City, but the interesting and accomplished daughter of General W., and Madame Rumor reports her to be engaged to the Prince of Lindenwald. In this socially festive atmosphere the trial proceeded. On the whole, the testimony followed that of the first trial. Sheriff Miller, who was the star witness for the State, identified Dr. Boughton as the masked Big Thunder who had taken his papers and burned them at Copake. Under cross-examination, he denied uncomfortably that he had boasted of a Livingston offer of $500 for Boughton's arrest. Jordan led him along with reassuringly gentle questions, then suddenly turned on him and roared, "'Didn't you tell the Indians that you were as good an anti-renter as they were?' 
The sheriff's eyes swept the courtroom and then fell as he denied the accusation. Didn't you promise the Indians that you would never fight them? They were your friends, that they put you in office? Again Miller denied courting Indian favor. The defense contended that the sheriff had given up his papers willingly, and therefore a charge of highway robbery could not be supported. But Miller swore that he had told Big Thunder that he would not give them up except to prevent violence. While he was telling his story, Sheriff Edmonds interrupted. Were you armed? No, replied the sheriff. You should have been, snapped the judge, and shot the scoundrel dead. Farmers called by Jordan testified that on several occasions Henry Miller had said, I'm as good an anti-renter as you are. Stephen Decker, on whose farm Miller was to have conducted the sale, halted by the Copake Indians, repeated his conversation with the sheriff on the ride to Sweet's Tavern. John Lape, a waiter at the tavern, testified that the sheriff did not pay for his dinner. I told him the natives said they would pay for it, and he said, well. Later the sheriff went upstairs and sent for some brandy. He didn't pay for it. He told me he was a good anti-renter. Elijah Finkel told how the sheriff and Big Thunder had a drink together, and the calico chief drank to his health. For the prosecution, Colonel Ambrose Root stated positively that Boughton was Big Thunder. Both had the same voice and used the same terms in talking about the manor leases, he said. He added that at the Smoky Hollow meeting he had asked Dr. Boughton why he came armed, the anti-rent leader replied, he said, that he had heard that the sheriff was coming with a posse of Irishmen and ruffians to arrest Big Thunder. In the four months since the first trial, Sheriff Miller had discovered new witnesses. He produced a shoemaker, who testified that at Smoky Hollow he had noticed peculiar half-soles on Big Thunder's boots, which corresponded to the ones Dr. Boughton wore when arrested. The prosecution put much of its reliance in Abram Carl, a former anti-renter who had fled to Connecticut during the disturbances. Tiring of exile, Carl had returned to give himself up, and also, the anti-renters said, to collect 110 green acres and $500 from the landlord for lying himself out of jail and Dr. Boughton into it. Carl told the jury he had been in the room at Copake when Dr. Boughton put on his Big Thunder disguise, and he had helped to remove it after the burning of the papers. In fact, said Carl, he had loaned Dr. Boughton his own cap and mask and his brother's calico dress. Ambrose Jordan countered by calling Carl's wife and mother to the stand. His mother explained that, as a child, her boy had been hit in the head with a nine-pin ball and had never been right since. He thinks that one of our horses has an extra joint in all her legs, she testified solemnly, and we can't make him think otherwise. Carl's wife, between sobs, said poor Abe was crazy, and that once he had interrupted the Methodist preacher in the midst of a prayer by jumping up and shouting, Down with the rent! When Abram's wife finished her testimony, the court adjourned for lunch. The anti-rent leaders decided, as they put it with elaborate innocence, that they could not permit Prince John to abuse the women on cross-examination, and so they brought up a team of horses, put Abe's mother and wife in the carriage, 
and galloped across the Connecticut line just ahead of the sheriff. Both sides knew that Dr. Boughton was Big Thunder, but to prove it in a court of law the prosecution was obliged to perjure witnesses, so the defense countered in kind. They produced a peddler who said he was present at Copake and talking to Dr. Boughton in the tavern at the very moment when Big Thunder was burning the papers, and therefore Dr. Boughton and Big Thunder could not be one and the same. A negro supported the alibi, testifying that he had helped Big Thunder remove his costume and that the chief was not Dr. Boughton. At this stage the anti-renters realized that the prosecution had throughout the trial anticipated every move they made. The mystery was later unblushingly clarified by Judge Edmonds in a full report of the trial, a report that was an unparalleled confession of judicial conspiracy. It read, There was at that time in Hudson a journeyman printer, a dissipated chap who had been an orderly sergeant in the uniform company of which I had been captain, and who was warmly attached to me. Early in the trial he came to my lodgings and told me he was determined that I should not be cheated as Judge Parker had been in the former trial, and he had therefore joined the anti-renters and was one of their committee on arrangements for the trial. They met every evening, and about eleven o'clock he would come and tell me all their proceedings. There seems no reason to credit Judge Edmund's statement regarding the printer's concern lest he be cheated. The report suggests rather conclusively that he himself put the espionage proposal to the man. Thanks to his spy, the judge learned many useful facts about the anti-rent witnesses. Why did you say you saw Big Thunder in the tavern? An anti-renter was reported to have asked one of the witnesses. You told me you were going to say you saw him crossing the public square. So I did, but the peddler got him in the house, and I couldn't get him out again. Soon after the Negro witness had testified in Boughton's behalf, Judge Edmund issued a warrant for his arrest for perjury. He had been informed, he said, that on the day the Negro claimed he helped Big Thunder unmask, the witness was actually twelve miles from the scene of the riot. The judge dispatched the sheriff with the warrant, but the anti-rent scouts outran him, and by the time the officer reached the Negro's home, yet another witness was out of reach in Connecticut. In his summation on Saturday, September 27th, Ambrose Jordan made one of his ablest speeches. He told the jury that Dr. Boughton was an educated man who was being persecuted because he had thrown his whole heart and feelings into a legitimate crusade. Jordan denied that Boughton had expressed contempt for law and courts, an allegation designed to confuse the issue and prejudice the judge and jury. It was true, he said, that when Boughton was asked why the tenants did not resort to the courts, he had used strong language and said that a thousand dollars in this or that lawyer's or judge's pocket would blind justice, but whatever his opinion of the courts, it was not evidence of guilt. Jordan ridiculed Sheriff Miller's pretended terror of Big Thunder, and reminded the jury that the sheriff drank, dined, and jested with the mighty monster of Hydra head and fantastic costume. The sheriff must have been looking for an excuse to yield when he told the Indians, I want you to understand that I will not give up my papers until threatened. This was not the conduct of a man robbed, Jordan said. All the evidence indicated some arrangement between the sheriff and Big Thunder, 
Miller knew that there would be resistance, yet he went to Copake alone and unarmed, against the advice of his friends. Dr. Boughton had been falsely represented as a foul fiend stirring up innocent men, upon whose head revenge for all the outrages charged to the Indians was to be visited, Jordan said, and the jury was being asked to convict him right or wrong. On this impassioned note, Jordan closed his defense at 6 p.m. Soon after John Van Buren began his summation, the court recessed for the weekend. On Monday, Martin Van Buren arrived to lend his son the prestige of his presence. Older downrent farmers watched with angry suspicion as he entered the courthouse. The poor boy they had helped to the White House, the man who had once deplored landlord domination at the polls. Now the poor man's president had come to smile on a jury in order to help convict the poor man's champion. Radiating charm and brotherly love, the great man took a conspicuous seat in the front of the courtroom. According to the Herald, John Van Buren made an able speech, about eight hours long, to a house full of the fair and beautiful of our city and neighboring towns, who encouraged the young widower by their smiles and made him brave and eloquent in their presence. All eyes beamed with love and enthusiasm. In his plea to the jury, Van Buren characterized Dr. Boughton as a man without any evidence of good character, and the farmers who took the stand in his defense as utterly worthless and degraded. He described the Negro witness as a monstrous black man, a characterization which some said would make political capital for both Van Buren's in the South. He defended Sheriff Miller's drinking with the Indians by saying, in that situation, surrounded by a band of negroes and disguised and intoxicated ruffians, I should be very ready to comply with any request they might make. If they wanted me to drink, I would drink. If they wanted me to turn anti-renter, I would do it. He himself had no feeling in the matter, except to see the laws maintained. But anti-rent activity, he said, demands serious attention, because it comes home to your occupation, stains all your relations in life, and is an excitement attended with immense expense, enormous taxes. These very trials alone add heavily to the burdens of taxation, and create a necessity for additional courts, judges, all involving great expenditure of money. He had no doubt of Dr. Boughton's guilt, but he felt that the jury had a far deeper interest in that matter. With you, he finally concluded in late afternoon, I will leave the case. Judge Edmonds then charged the jury to be vigilant and firm in bringing the guilty to justice. The tenants, he said, could not look to the legislature to pass laws impairing the obligations of contracts. They should instead rely upon the action of a sound public opinion in bringing about voluntary arrangements between themselves and their landlords. Moreover, no relief of any kind could be expected, he warned, until the base and the guilty were denounced and punished. He wanted the jury to remember that circumstantial evidence was often more reliable than positive evidence. It was eight o'clock that night when he closed, and the jury retired to deliberate. Word that the case had gone to the jury brought farm wagons clattering into Hudson, and as the night wore on without a verdict, hope rose among the farmers who clustered about the sputtering whale-oil lights in the square. 
soon after daybreak the jury sent a message to judge edmonds at his hotel asking to be discharged they could not agree the farmers were jubilant and amasa bailey boughton's father-in-law at once set about arranging bail but judge edmonds was determined to convict he arose dressed ate a leisurely breakfast and then went to the courthouse to tell the jury that he would not discharge them this case has been twice tried he said and the interest of public justice imperatively demands that it should now be finally closed he did not however mean to extort a verdict from their suffering or starve them into agreement on his way to court he had ordered breakfast for them you will have your dinner and your supper at the usual hours he said to-night you will have beds i must insist on your agreeing on a verdict he soon showed them that he meant what he said as he reported with some complacency the jurors looked out the window and saw him mount his horse and ride off leading another horse with a side saddle on it i then took a ride of two or three hours his account continued accompanied by a lady who was a stranger in those parts in order to show her the beautiful scenery in the locality i took her to many by-roads and thus it happened that when i struck the main road on my return i met one of the sheriff's officers who told me the jury had agreed upon a verdict more than an hour ago and the sheriff had sent his officers in all directions to find me the spectators were silent as the jury filed into the court we find the defendant guilty as charged announced the foreman the news swept over hudson judge edmonds postponed sentencing until two o'clock in the afternoon but long before the scheduled hour the courtroom was filled and a throng of five thousand grim farmers jammed the square the trial had dragged on for four long weeks and it was the last day of september on all sides autumn had hung the day with brilliant colors as though to mock the tenant's defeat below hudson mount merino was a heap of gold to the west the catskills rose as bright as the calico dress of big thunder judge edmonds went immediately to his hotel and summoned the sentencing court of columbia county five judges the mayor the recorder and four aldermen one of the judges apparently an anti-rent sympathizer refused to be a party to the proceedings but the others were ready to serve dr boughton had been convicted of robbery a charge that allowed a wide range of punishments from a minor sentence to life imprisonment judge edmonds told the court that he favored the maximum to put an end to the whole disturbance and do away with the necessity of trying any more of the indicted men only the mayor of hudson a friend of joseph d monell agreed with the judge no one of the others was willing to stand for more than a twenty-year imprisonment and some wanted only a minor sentence judge edmonds reported after a long discussion without much appearance of any agreement the first judge proposed to let me pronounce what judgment i pleased and to that all agreed i told them no the discussion resumed again and with as little prospect of agreement as ever when the dinner bell rang the first judge turned to one of the county judges and said come judge there's the dinner bell you go for life and i will thus the sentence was fixed it was the old story the judge observed quoting pope 
wretches must hang that jurymen may dine when judge edmonds returned to the courthouse he was scarcely able to press through the crowd he ordered the farmers to let him pass but they would open a passage for only a few feet and then block the way again damning and abusing him to their heart's content as dr boughton was led in mary boughton was already in her seat all eyes were on the man standing before the bench his blue eyes steady in his white-crowned face judge edmonds began sternly your offence in fact is high treason rebellion against your government and armed insurrection until you came among them the tenantry of the manor were a quiet orderly law-abiding people yourself suffering none of the evils of tenure of which you complained a man of education you well understood your duty to your country yet when remonstrated with on the impropriety of your course you admitted that you knew it to be wrong yet you avowed your intention to persist in your measures of resistance because thus alone could you attain your end possessed of a species of popular eloquence you made your appeals to the interest of the tenants by holding out to them the prospect of exemption from the payment of rent you thus enlisted in your service several hundred men whom you publicly paraded armed and disguised you have been the leader the active instigator the principal fomenter of all these disturbances you have made yourself an example of disorder and violence and you have caused many erring and misguided men to follow it to their ruin and to the disturbance of the public peace the sentence of the court is that you be confined to prison for the term of your natural life the harshness of the sentence staggered boughton and he had to agree with jordan that it would be useless to appeal for the governor had the power of appointment over all the judges as long as silas wright occupied the executive chair the judiciary would reflect his own prejudice the only course for a man of courage was to try to see in his plight some perspective by submitting to my fate dr boughton said resolutely i will win public opinion to help our cause the people throughout the state will consider that my trial was an outrage on justice once more word spread up and down the hudson that thousands of farmers were preparing to sack the jail and carry away their condemned leader but at midnight when dr boughton was led up the gangplank of a northbound steamer heavily ironed and escorted by sixty soldiers the stars were bright in the clear october sky and the only sound was the slapping of the restless water against the dock mrs boughton was allowed to walk as far as the boat with her husband and there they parted don't be discouraged she whispered thinking ahead to elections when the tenants would have their chance to register a torrential protest you will be released in less than two years she stood watching as the boat slid into the deep channel and merged like a ghost with the night up the river there were strength and beauty in mary boughton's spirit which stood her well in this crisis the hatred of injustice that burned with a white heat in dr boughton had seared her own life she had adhered to me in all my troubles and vicissitudes of fortune the doctor summed it up later it was a hard trial for a woman to see her husband suffer a punishment next to the halter 
In the early hours of morning, when the steamer edged into the dock at Albany, Sheriff Miller saw with alarm that the river front was crowded with the stalwart yeomanry of the Helderbergs. He ordered the boat put about in mid-channel, where Dr. Boughton was transferred to a barge and hurried to Troy, seven miles up the river. Troy, too, proved to be full of anti-renters, and the doctor was taken secretly to the jail for a stopover. A few of his Rensselaer County friends were permitted to see him, among them Sheriff Gideon Reynolds, always a tenant partisan. When the time came to lead Dr. Boughton to the train, there were so many farmers outside the jail that Sheriff Miller refused to leave. But Sheriff Reynolds knew his people. Brushing aside all protests, he took Boughton by the arm and walked with him to the street. At the sight of their leader, the crowd was in a ferment of excitement. Their shouts were a welcome, and a threat that seemed to justify Miller's alarms. "'Let's take him!' someone shouted. Hundreds of voices picked up the cry. But when Dr. Boughton raised his hands, in the gesture that had always meant Big Thunder was ready to speak, they all fell silent, waiting. "'I have made up my mind to go peaceably,' he told them. "'It is for the benefit of our cause that I do so.' The farmers were speechless a moment or two, unable to believe him. Then a murmur of assent ran through the crowd. A cheer was raised, and they fell back in good order. Reassured by this demonstration of Dr. Boughton's power over the men, Sheriff Miller joined the prisoner in the street. His appearance was greeted by angry comment that grew to abusive threats and a menacing surge of the crowd. But Dr. Boughton gravely asked his fellow anti-renters not to harm his captor, and Miller was permitted to pass. Some of the doctor's friends were allowed to accompany him as far as Saratoga, but there they took their leave. A reporter for the Whitehall Democrat said Boughton conversed freely on his way through the village, insisting that he had acted an honorable part and that he represented 200,000 honorable men. A writer for the Plattsburgh Whig, who rode across Lake Champlain with him, found him a man of good information, possessing talent of the finest order. He passed his jokes and smoked his cigar with as much independence as the greatest gentleman on board, he wrote. Dr. Boughton's courage failed him when he entered the new Clinton prison at Dannemora, and he gave way to tears and deep dejection. He soon learned, however, that he was to be treated more as a political prisoner than as a criminal. He was straightaway placed in charge of the prison hospital, no idle post, since the iron mines and foundries for which the prison had been established earlier in 1845 were full of hazards to the convict laborers, and he was allowed almost as much independence as the prison officials. A measure of the public's interest in the Boughton case is the fact that blackface minstrels, then just coming into popularity, made jokes about it. Why is Judge Edmonds greater than Ben Franklin? Because Franklin bottled lightning, but Judge Edmonds jugged thunder. The press was almost unanimous in its approval of the life term for Dr. Boughton. But the New York Herald correspondent wrote, this is the most extraordinary case I have ever heard of. All whose minds have not been poisoned with prejudice are astonished and angered at the verdict. History furnishes no parallel. Ten witnesses, swearing positively to an alibi, 
and still the jury convicting the prisoner. What accounts for this strange procedure? Was it evidence? Common sense tells us no. Was it the address of the Attorney General? Those who listened to his remarks cannot attribute it to that. Was it Judge Edmonds's charge? Ah, there's the rub. Did he not tell the jury that circumstantial evidence was more reliable than positive? In Albany, Thomas DeVere reminded the farmers that there never was a great reform, but demanded its victim. Let that not deter or appall you, he wrote in the anti-renter. Keep within the bounds of the law, but up and onward. The despotism of the press is complete. Down the river in New York City, the national reformers held a special meeting in Croton Hall to form the Big Thunder Company for the liberation of Dr. Boughton. Alvin Beauvais, who had been a guest at the doctor's house only a few weeks earlier, was the principal speaker, and Evans's Young America gave a full report of the meeting. Though Boughton was not the father of the anti-rent movement, Beauvais said, he had been active in promoting the spark. He found an agitation without form and void, and he organized it. He took it up in an enlarged and philanthropic sense. From the first the landlords determined to make him a victim, and pursued him until at last he wore the chains. The circumstances are more alarming than can be described to those who watch the progress of American tyranny. There was not a doubt but that the whole force of the administration was brought to bear to secure the conviction. Beauvais commented at considerable length on the trial, the transfer of the judge from New York City to Hudson, the character of the judge, and his extraordinary directions to the triers respecting the qualifications of jurors. He dared not speak all he thought on these points, he said, because he might be prosecuted and persecuted, as Dr. Boughton was. But he felt confident that, taken in connection with recent exposures respecting the corruption of saints in ermine and political intriguers, the sentence of Dr. Boughton would be the means of revolutionizing the state. I am, said he, about to raise a banner which I hope will be carried in daylight and torchlight processions throughout the state by all men of liberty and progress until its object shall be accomplished. Beauvais then unfolded and suspended in front of the platform a handsome banner on which appeared the words, Liberation of Dr. Boughton. It was received by the audience with deafening applause, which continued several minutes. George Evans followed Beauvais to the platform. No matter what is said of Dr. Boughton, he will rank in history with Lafayette and other great names, he said. Dr. Boughton is a true friend of the people's rights, and whether big thunder or not, he has committed no sin against morality or the principles of the American Revolution. Evans promised that from that day on, young America would fight for the liberation of Dr. Boughton, and the next issue of the paper carried a line of bold-faced type in its masthead, the slogan raised by Alvin Beauvais, Liberation of Dr. Boughton. A prophetic political note was struck by John Comerford, a veteran labor leader, first president of the New York City General Trades Union, who told the audience that no stronger evidence than the trial could be adduced to show the need for a new state constitution providing for election of judges, he warned, 
Under the present circumstances, no poor man is safe who contends for a reform that shall remove the oppressions of the laborer. Officers, even judges, are no longer appointed for their honesty and capability, but to reward political villainy. It is my deliberate opinion that if Dr. Boughton should not be liberated and reform effected, it will be but a short time before there will be anti-rentism in New York. Dr. Boughton has been victimized by the Democratic Party, and no governor can withstand the torrent of public indignation while Dr. Boughton remains in prison. Unmoved by the adverse criticism of the liberal elements and the unmuzzled press, Judge John Worth Edmonds was congratulating himself that he had successfully concluded the Boughton case. Before leaving Hudson, he called up the rest of the anti-rent prisoners and told them he did not propose to try them. I believe enough has been done to answer the ends of justice, he said benevolently, enough to show the mischief and folly of your conduct. With Dr. Boughton out of the way, and the landlord's will faithfully executed, the judge could now salve his own conscience, and perhaps put the released tenants in a better mood for voting the Democratic ticket, and cultivating their land, to pay new rents. He told the prisoners he was as fully aware as they of the injurious effects of the manorial tenures, but that they must look to the law, and the sure will of time, for redress. He continued their bail, and told them that if they showed just appreciation of this forbearance toward them, in a year's time he would advise the Attorney General to discharge them all from further prosecution. End of Section 17 Recording by Maria Casper